I'm not like a regular mom, I'm a cool mom. Mom. <laughs> mom. Hey, cool moms. Welcome to spooky season, which is my favorite time of the year. Uh, really, just because it's the 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 start of my birthday season. Really, I mean, it is Scorpio season, the greatest, most intense, passionate sign of all of the zodiac. And uh, this year, Sergeant has been super pumped about being a ghost. So you know, I'm trying to get all of his Halloween items together. I want to be that mom that makes the costume, only I don't know how to sew. So fingers crossed, we'll see what happens. Uh, But you know, (laughs) the spookiest part of this season really has been dating. That's the scariest shit that I have confronted in quite some time from the absolute trash that exists on dating apps. (sighs) Because I've been open. I've been open. I've been... Yeah, just open to the possibilities that blessings can come from any direction through any modality. And so, yeah, I got on a few dating apps (laughs) over this quarantine, ended things on one in particular, but they're not sponsoring this podcast, so no need to mention them. And I did go on a really awesome first date, maybe the best first date I've been on. And then that's kind of like the best thing that has happened since talking to this person. (laughs) It's that one date. We went to the beach. We had great conversations, talked for hours. And then like so many, I don't know if it's men, millennial men, millennials, humans, two-legged creatures, but like there's just no good follow-up, follow-through. Like I don't think dating is that hard. I think dating is really about communication and consistency, whatever consistency looks like. If it's a once a week, five times a week, every whatever the cadence of the relationship is, establish it and keep that shit going. So I have found that so many men do not know or have no interest in actually doing that. Uh, so it's been kind of a waste of my time. <laughs> so yeah, nothing, nothing really going on in the dating area. Unfortunately, I know last episode, I was like kind of excited and really optimistic to tell you all about what happened, but I don't really have much to report aside from the really good date that I had high hopes, high hopes for and kind of fizzled out. But you know what is just bubbling and boiling up is my man, Sergeant sliding into pre-k this week was our very first day of preschool there were no disappointments anywhere in that arena i was so excited for sergeant he was so excited to start school he has been caught yelling out the window to kids in the neighborhood so i knew it was probably time for him to really get socialized and uh as i predicted He had no fear about saying goodbye. He literally ran away from me and ran directly into the classroom. So pre-K is off to a fantastic start. I am really excited to have more free time. Let's see what I do with it. I mean, I got one thing to do. I got a big thing to do. And that's called a job. That is right, mamas. After all the bullshit that went down, this summer 
from the drama of the six, six weeks of interviewing from the last job, a blessing fell in my lap. Literally got a job I did not apply for. And it's the perfect permalance position. And I'm really excited to get started uh, this upcoming week and kind of share more about the the content that we'll be creating and the really cool things that we're doing. And I think I'm most excited because the work is in alignment with the work that I'm doing with moms and the work that I do for cool moms. So yeah, I'll definitely keep all of you posted. I'm just excited uh, for just like this new chapter, the start of spooky season, although very crummy, very crummy, 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 very tacky in the dating arena. <laughs> it's getting real cute in all other aspects of my life. So I'm really excited to just continue to manifest greatness. Of course, awesome things coming with cool moms. Uh, something that is on the docket well, for this episode is we're talking politics, which also very much in alignment with spooky season because this is the spookiest shit out here if we're talking about the political climate in the United States right now. And talking about politics can be uh, really obviously divisive, polarizing, and uncomfortable. Not my favorite topic. I do not watch television that's politically centered. I don't keep up with the debates. I don't do any of that stuff the number one reason is for my mental health because it feels bleak because it just feels like emotional masochism and I'm not interested. I don't want to get beat up mentally. So, however, <laughs> you know, we are all privy to the happenings of our nation and where we live. Even saying our nation feels really weird and uncomfortable. I'm like, is this my nation? But we all know what's happening here stateside and I, like many folks, have just been trying to figure out what is my lane? Where is my place? How can I enact change and really be like a conduit of change in my community? So I am a huge proponent of not telling people what the fuck they need to be doing, aside from the fact that you need to be doing something preferably a multitude of things that directly impact your community on a grassroots level. Do you know your neighbors? Do you know the people within your community that are in positions of need? How can you be an asset to people within your community? So these are questions I think are really important to be asking ourselves. And, you know, voting is one, one way to enact some form of change that might be good, bad, or otherwise, but it's one way to enact change. And I think that it's most powerful when you couple that with efforts outside of the polls. So I hope that this year, um, we all just take some self inventory of how we can continue to community build, because I think the only way that we are going to get help is when we help each other and help ourselves. So that's my little one, two, and three, but you know, I say that and I'm also just as interested and curious and excited to be welcoming our first politician to Cool Moms. We have Congresswoman Katherine Clark up next. 
Okay, so today on Cool Moms, it is a really fantastic, huge first. We have Congresswoman Catherine Clark, who is a congresswoman of the 5th District in Massachusetts, and she's an advocate for women and families. Uh, Congresswoman Clark has been a vocal advocate for ending wage discrimination, protecting women's health care, access to affordable, high-quality child care, paid family leave, safer schools, and other reforms that address the challenges of women and families, which is perfect, which is why we are here. This is why I'm so pumped to talk to you. I'm like, these are all the things that I have to deal with on the day-to-day. So this is fantastic. <laughs> Welcome to Cool Moms, Congresswoman Clark. It's such a pleasure. Oh, Elise, thank you for having me. I am so excited about this conversation and hope this does indeed transform me into a cool mom. <laughs> I love that. My mom checks in with me every day if she's cool or not yet. <laughs> um, so I I will I will give a, a quick preface of this conversation by saying that just so that our listeners have a, a, an idea, although they know who I am in terms of politics and voting, I would say that I am. Hmm. What would I say? Maybe I'm the average voter in that I voted in almost ele- every election since I was of legal voting age, my first uh, election, presidential election was with Obama's first term. And I think I also probably like a lot of other black people have this kind of uh, generational guilt of voting. So I vote in many ways of obligation to my family and all the sacrifices they made, um, which doesn't hurt. So I just <laughs> want to give this a little context, which is also why I'm really excited to speak with you to gain a better understanding, better insight. And quite frankly, I think that I didn't understand uh, voting as one of many tools um, for change until I became a mother. So yeah, we're right. We're here. Um, but we can start off a little light with my inaugural question, which is always what is your astrological sign and does that mean anything to you? I am a cancer and uh, it, it, it definitely does. <laughs> oh, I'm excited. I love when it does. What does it mean to you? Well, you know, I, I care a great deal about relationships and, and family and through my political work, um, that is extended to other families because mm. it's the way we build strong communities. So I do see myself as the cancer that likes people to be in good relationships that are healthy and loving. And uh, and I try and, and try and do that through the work and policies and laws that we pass help people find their happiness, help them be able to raise strong families uh, and and have what they need uh, to make those families healthy. Yes. I, as soon as you said cancer, I was like, oh, this all of the pieces just fell together <laughs> for me. <laughs> it totally makes sense that your platform is built on the foundation of families and and fortifying families. So love that makes all the sense i love when astrology works works in, in my benefit for my own logic <laughs> my friends would tell you though that i am you know 
headed towards the cusp of Leo. And that has a few uh, overtures into Mm -hmm. my pride and passion as well. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. Listen, I prefer that cusp over the Gemini one, but I digress. Um, So (laughs) um, I kind of want to start from a little bit more of the beginning um, to kind of better understand your trajectory into politics and what did that did that start maybe an undergrad as like a poli sci major? What did that look like for you becoming a congresswoman? It, you know, the interesting thing for me, and I hope that your listeners will think about this. I never saw politics as something I would do that I would be interested in, that I could uh, even be elected to public office. Uh, For one thing, uh, for a good part of my, when I was a young adult in college and starting out as an attorney, I really had a fear of public speaking. So if you'd mm. ever told me that I would uh, you know, make a living by through public speaking, I would not have believed you. But like so wow. many women, um, I found my voice through advocacy for others and mm. for working in the area of childcare. Uh, I was the Office of Child Care Services General Counsel here in Massachusetts, and getting to see uh, the incredible benefits of early education, how it really can be that equalizing force to poverty, how the exposure to rich literacy skills and language, um, how the socio Uh, development can just excel and give a child the opportunity that when they get to kindergarten, they are ready to learn and healthy and ready to become great readers, which we know unlocks um, a child's potential. And seeing all the barriers for families in, in being able to access affordable care And then also seeing that in a very predominantly uh, female and women of color uh, field, also seeing them struggle with low wages and often not being able to afford to care for their own families while working full time as early educators. All sort of these issues around racial justice, economic justice, um, the wealth gap in this country, uh, you know, equality and educational opportunity really came to play in childcare. And as I testified in front of our state legislature and worked on this issue, uh, you know, when the opportunity came up to run for a local school committee office, I decided I'd do it. Um, You know, it was not a great political risk because there were um, eight people running for nine open seats. So that was pretty much layup. (laughs) But, you know, that's really what began um, my political career. I never dreamed it would end up in Congress, but I have been so fortunate uh, to be able to meet people along the way 
that made the connection for me about women in politics and what it means, Mm -hmm. how important it is, and helped open the door for me as I was, you know, coming up, uh, coming up and, and coming into my my own voice and and discovering that politics is a way to help benefit uh, millions of people across the country. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So there, my mind is kind of spinning because so much of what you said resonates with me uh, in a few different prongs. So one, I spent probably 10 years or so of my career working in education, uh, always in Title I schools from D.C., where I'm originally from, to uh, New York City. And then, of course, that compounded now with being a mother. And now, even even more specifically, tomorrow's my son's first day of preschool, which, which is... Um, huge emotional but also as many of us are feeling a a tremendous financial lift for my family and something that I have found you know I I think I first kind of taking a step back and and you were talking about um, your entryway being not only in education and advocacy in education but also understanding that education is literally the first line of defense against so many uh, social barriers like social political barriers like poverty, economic barriers like poverty. But we're also seeing that in um, these districts that are incredibly impoverished, you are seeing, uh, you know, I've worked in schools where we taught classes that uh, didn't have books, didn't have access to the Internet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, just didn't have access to the basic needs. And so then we're able to see at a very early stage the kind of, quite frankly, the the school to prison pipeline and how that is becomes even more clear, um, unfortunately, at a, at a super early age, just by the economic disadvantages of so many students. Now, I could go down a long rabbit hole with that, but I would first love to talk about, p- pardon my background for just one moment, my little person... Uh, (laughs) we're talking about working from home my little person is like oh no i'm gonna come in and interrupt your call even though i have everything that i need (laughs) to to relax um (laughs) the life of a working mom and this is the life exactly it's like please leave me alone in my bedroom i'm trying to be very serious and professional and speak to a congresswoman um (laughs) so I am particularly um, interested in talking about kind of uh, childcare costs and the wage disparity this, that exists within childcare. Um, what, uh, you know, I know that you have an incredible uh, voting history that supports women and children. Uh, very, very specifically, I saw that you like voted yes to the Child Care is Essential Act. Can you talk a little bit about that and how does that directly impact families today? You know, as we are seeing the economic fallout from this pandemic, uh, we know that it is women that are bearing the brunt. And childcare was um, underinvested in going into this pandemic. And like so many other inequities that we knew existed, the pandemic has exacerbated them. And this mm-hmm. is true with childcare. 
you know, this pandemic is now being called, uh, you know, has caused what is being called a she session. And childcare is a major contributing factor. First yes. of all, we've had incredible job loss of childcare providers. Over 320,000 jobs were lost in childcare this spring alone, and they are coming back slowly and mm -hmm. are at great jeopardy if we do not get another relief package. But for right. women, we have seen, um, uh, you know, even in June, 11.2% of the job losses were those of women. When you compare that with 10.2% for men, and Black and Latinas have, women have also been disproportionately affected with unemployment rates of 14 and over 15% respectively. So what we are seeing are women leaving the workforce, 800,000 just in the month of September compared to 200,000 for men, mm. um, mainly because of childcare and their inability to find and afford quality care. We know that it's still women who uh, make most of the decisions and bear the brunt of childcare when it is not working for a family on their careers. So it is one of the many areas where we can't go back to so-called normal. We can't go right. back to the status quo. We have to do better and we have to fix an unequal child care system if we're going to rebuild a more inclusive and equitable economy. So too often we see child care providers that are not treated like business women and by investing in them, we enhance the quality of cares for our children. And so this is sort of our canary in the economic coal mine, um, that if childcare is not doing well, if providers are chronically overpaid and childcare is out of reach economically for too many families, we cannot have an economic recovery. It is that essential. And so in Congress, in the House, we have put an investment of $57 billion to stabilize the industry. But we need the Senate and the administration to join with us and join them, not only uh, the childcare providers and parents and um, advocacy groups, but the multiple chambers of commerce, businesses small and huge, that are joining this fight because they recognize how critical childcare is to their workforce and to their ability uh, to succeed and, and to rebuild their businesses um, post-pandemic. Mm. Now, you're saying that that's $57 billion that's being put back specifically into childcare, is that correct? That's correct. The Child Care is Essential Act uh, creates a stabilization fund to provide grant funding to child care providers so we can stabilize the sector 
and help support providers as they reopen and operate. There are many new licensing requirements for childcare providers, and we also gave additional um, help to them so that they can buy things that they may need, um, an ability to sterilize toys, a vestibule on a family childcare home so they can check in with children before bringing them in to be with other children and their own families, uh, movable walls, that can help protect and keep everyone safe. These are the type of investments that are just critical to make. Um, I think that when the Fed Chair Powell was speaking this week about how we cannot give too much in relief because the needs are so great, he was actually talking about childcare and how we <laughs> cannot spend too much money on making sure that we stabilize and bring this industry to a place where it can it can not only keep its doors open but that it can thrive and create opportunities for all of our kids i you know this this is <laughs> excuse me i'm so sorry congresswoman this is why like i also am able to recognize as the even though this can be a little annoying at times, what a privilege it is to still be able to work from home for my work to very much be in alignment with my actual life as a mother and my obligations outside of work and to be able to like navigate that because I know there's so many mothers who cannot. Um, there's so many mothers who have to go to work, have to figure out childcare. I think that was definitely me prior to COVID, us living in Los Angeles, being an East Coast based family, all of my families in DC and Maryland. And so I don't have that same support uh, of community. At least I didn't then uh, trying to work. So it was difficult. I literally lost money paying for childcare, being at work, trying to make money. And so I think that is a dilemma that uh, so many mothers have found ourselves in. It's like I'm paying for someone to watch my kids so I can go to work to pay for someone to watch my child. I, um, I remember very distinctly the day where I figured out that uh, with, at the time, three young children, all in childcare, that my entire salary was going to childcare. And, yeah. you know, I was lucky. I had a spouse who mm -hmm. was working, but it really was a moment of what are we doing? Um, how does this system make any sense? And we have resources uh, and we have a dual income. And still, it is just a, a system and an expense that can be, you know, one that is larger than a mortgage or a rent payment. Mm -hmm. And oh, yeah. You know, what is, you know, it just goes to where our priorities are and how they need to shift. If we are going to truly get serious about income inequality and leveling the playing field for our kids uh, when it comes to their education, because mm -hmm. childcare is incredibly powerful tool for addressing the health of our children, for getting them ready to learn, for making sure that parents can be part of a workforce, 
been making sure that we are building a strong business community uh, where we live, but it also continues because it is a woman-dominated field and because it, we still see it as a private choice made by a parent instead of right. a public good, um, one that's underinvested in and sort of comes along as an accessory instead of part of the oh, yeah. very foundation of our economy. Oh my, I, I'm so glad that you said accessory because again, it, although I have a background in education, again, I did not understand the intricacies of the educational system um, in a very personal way until I became a parent. And, you know, I like to speak very frankly here on Cool Moms. I, you know, in this process of finding a preschool, um, there is a lot of privilege and searching for preschools because uh, just even even the interview process, the way that things are uh, worded and set up, submitting photos of your family, like this entire process, you just see systematically how it will deter certain families or certain people who don't have access to the same um, economic privileges are completely left out. And just to get my son started into, into preschool, uh, two days a week, mind you, $2,000 just to get him signed up. Oh. And that's not including the monthly fees and all of the things. And then, of course, all the provisions that we must make now for COVID. And so I, I feel fortunate that, again, that I'm able to provide for him and send him to the school that has, you know, eight different kinds of animals and all of the outdoor space and they bake bread and like, you know, all the stuff that you want for your child. But it continues to kind of weigh on me the real disparity and accessibility to childcare that's going on within this country. And so I, I'm, and I, of course, as you said before, living through this pandemic has only further illuminated um, how this, our educational system needs to be restructured, restructured to really benefit children and families. What does that look like? What does that restructuring look like uh, for American families? Yeah, you are so right. If we want to avoid a permanent class system of have and have nots that in our country, we have to be very clear eyed, has a strong racial component. We know that black families spend more than half of their income on childcare costs. And it is, you know, it is so tied together with all the things that we want to do. So there are three things that I think we are trying to tackle with this immediate crisis that we have. One is to help stabilize and raise the wages for childcare providers. Make sure that we continue to have slots and have people who can be full-time uh, child edu early educators and also provide for their families and earn a living wage. Those two things are critical. And that involves mm -hmm. making sure that we are following through on a bill that I've proposed that would have student loan forgiveness for people in the childcare field as they work towards a master's so mm -hmm. that they can increase their funding and their income and also not get burdened 
by the costs of that higher education degree and stay in the childcare field. Second, we have to address costs for parents. We have to make more subsidized slots available for a greater range of incomes, but we have to make sure that our low-income children do not get stuck on wait lists and never see the childcare um, provider that they need and that their parents need for success. There are ways we have, we have put this together, looking at tax credits that are fully refundable, um, you know, deductions for care, increasing that so that we can help parents bring down the costs and make quality childcare affordable. And then we have to work with our business community to make sure that we are underscoring how important all of this is to private business and that we are not only creating opportunities for higher education, but that we are helping bring up um, the capital needs and address them of childcare centers. Often there are conditions within childcare centers that there's just no extra money at the end of the month to address. And so we have to make sure that we are supporting that and offering the grants that will not only keep the children and families and providers safe in this pandemic and safe from coronavirus, but also will help bring up many of the deferred capital needs of childcare centers. So those are the pillars that I think we need to focus on in order to be sure that we have a child care system that is robust and that is really creating economic and educational opportunities for every family. Now, is universal child care um, a real possibility, a real potential in the U.S.? And if so, how would that work? What would it take in order to have free, accessible child care for every family? Yeah, it's going to take an investment of dollars. And it is discouraging that we are not further along. The one thing we do not lack in child care is research. We have so much research that shows the incredible, powerful, positive impact of quality childcare on a child and a family's life. And yet, because this is a female-dominated field, because we still consider this primarily a decision of parents, but specifically of moms, we have not made the investments necessary. So now we're at a crisis and we're looking at a huge invest, investment of tens of billions of dollars just to hold on. But we mm. need to be looking forward as well and making sure that we are continuing to educate, um, to advocate so that we can get to a point where universal childcare is the norm and is what is expected and seen as an important part of the continuum of our public schools. You know, something that I, that I picked up on as I'm listening to you um, is again, unfortunately, so many of these issues, um, so much obviously of what we're talking about is directly related to 
either industries in which are uh, women-led industries or mothers, and ultimately seems to boil back down to a real systematic issue of the lack of valuing of women in this nation, uh, which is just <laughs> directly related to like toxic masculinity and white supremacy. And so I'm, I'm wondering then how, how, where, how do we tackle and is politics the arena in which we tackle the issue of the lack of value of women in this nation? Is that a political issue? Is that a community issue? You know, where, where do politics stand in that? You know, I think it's all of the above. Uh, it's not particularly um, easy to talk about that in 2020, we still have such uh, a far way to go for equity for women and mm. truly changing our culture and how people see and feel and value women's work, both right. as, as moms and outside of the home as professionals, as essential workers. Um, it, is, it is women that we saw on the front lines of this pandemic. They are our nurses. They are, uh, you know, the lower paid essential workers that showed up mm -hmm. to stock the grocery shelves, uh, to clean the hospital rooms. Um, these are jobs of women and they are often poorly paid. And we know for even better paid jobs, we still have issues of pay equity. And these issues are only magnified for women of color. So part of this time in our history of racial reckoning is that we also have to understand and, um, and fight for equality for all women, and especially for our Black, Latina, Asian, uh, you know, fellow women. Um, it, this is about all of us in this together. And for women of color, they are just left out of the equation far too often. So if we want to have an economy that is thriving, creating opportunities, that really is one that the American dream is still possible that you can rise up economically because you have good schools. You have the opportunity for great early education. You have access mm -hmm. to affordable health care and decent, safe housing and a living wage. It starts with childcare and it starts with valuing women's work in a very different way than we have in our history. Yes, I, um, you know, I think that the time in which we're living in, although quite honestly, I don't think it's unfortunately very different from a lot of huge um, social kind of uprisings that have happened in our history. Um, we're just seeing it kind of in a different framework. And I think that's kind of the framework of technology and having access to more information for injustices to be more visible for, you know, communities of mothers and women to galvanize online and discuss our grievances and our concerns and our hopes and our dreams. Um, 
it's easy to lose, I hate to say lose hope, but to lose hope or to lose faith in a system that seems as if it hasn't worked yet. Has there been a moment in which your faith has been tested in this system as a politician and also as a citizen? Oh, yes. <laughs> you, know, and, uh, um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, one of my real um, uh, crises of faith uh, came with the the mass shooting we saw in Orlando at the Pulse nightclub. And we had lost so many young lives um, of of young adults, um, of people, uh, primarily LGBTQ, who were out for a night of dancing. And to me, you know, dancing is what humans uniquely do. And for so many in the LGBTQ uh, community, that dance floor is a place of refuge and, and really one of family. And in Congress, we gave, uh, we had a moment of silence for them that lasted about eight seconds. And I just couldn't believe it, that that was all we were going to do, that it was heartfelt, but that we were the, you know, United States House of Representatives, and this was the best we could do. Gun violence, child care, equal pay, these are not issues without solutions and without ways forward. We just have to be intentional. So, you know, that was just a moment of true despair that uh, through a series of events and the incredible leadership of John Lewis led to us taking over the House floor and having a sit-in. Um, we didn't move the legislation, but we did dissent. And mm -hmm. that is what Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg taught us we have to do. She taught us the power of dissent. Mm -hmm. And that through dissent, through our vote, through speaking out, we can change things that seem insurmountable. And as discouraging as it is where we are with racial justice, with gender parity, with making sure that we have income uh, equality in this, in this country, that we are addressing the wealth gap that drives so much of this. Um, it, it can seem too complicated and overwhelming, but we have tackled things like this before. And we are a resilient bunch, us moms. Mm -hmm. And when yes. we collectively um, speak together, this pandemic has taught us how in, how joined we are, um, and that the security, um, uh, you know, has to be for all of us if it's going to be for any of us. Yes. And we have to take hope from that. Women of this country are running for office. Women of this country are voting in numbers that we have never seen before. Mm -hmm. Women are going to change the paradigm. And, you know, John Lewis told us we cannot get weary. We cannot 
be defeated. We have to keep the faith and we have to keep marching together strongly. You know, you, I, I love that you speak about the resiliency of, of women because that, that we are, you know, women, mothers, we are the gatekeepers. We are the healers. We are the thinkers, the visionaries. I think, you know, there, I don't want to misquote, but I think that there's a really great Malcolm X quote somewhere in there uh, that's really about how you can see a lot about a nation, about a society, by how they treat their women and children. Yeah. Um, and I would kind of love to to go back to before you were a mother versus now being a mother. I believe you're a mother of three. Is that correct? That's right. That's yes, right. three, three sons. I wish I can't even fathom having one. I'm like, that's a lot of energy. <laughs> but, there was a lot of a lot of energy. <laughs> how did your views on politics evolve in becoming a mother and how you approached your work? You know, for me, I think um becoming a mom does connect you um, to really the common humanity in all of us. And it is just this, um, it is this almost sacred bond to other mothers and, mm -hmm. and to women uh, and women who aren't mothers because they are also part of this sisterhood. But there is something about having a child and sort of seeing this, having all your hopes and dreams for this child and wanting every mom to think that if they play by the rules, if they, um, if they, you know, if they act in the way that we have told them to be, that their children are gonna be okay, that their children are gonna be secure, that their children are gonna have a fair shot. And we're not talking about equality of outcomes, but we have to have that equality of opportunity. And for girls and for women, we can see that the deck is stacked against them from the moment they're born. And mm -hmm. we have to change that. And it's gonna come, I believe, from women and from moms, because we have this universal time span, spanning connection uh, to humanity through our children. And we have to want the very best not just for our own children, but for everyone's children. Yes, abs absolutely. I, I would agree. I think, um, you know, I've always been, you know, in, in many ways an empath um, and having an, a background in education really connect with children and, and with, with the youth. But you're right. It wasn't until I became a, a mother that there was a certain level of like, connective tissue that like humanity that empathy that that love and that want um the same with the way that you want for your child for other people's children that that didn't click for me until becoming a mother now i'm like now i'll cry at anything you know like now now i like see kids sharing like clips of kids sharing toys in the classroom and i'm like a puddle because you know you for me my brain immediately you know hopes that 
that my child experiences those moments of joy and, and humanity uh, that other kids experience. So I totally get it. Being a mom just made me like a a, a puddle. Um, no. But I. <laughs> but it it's also more than has, just the hormones of the moment. It's, it's really... totally way more. Something changes <laughs> permanently. Um, but it also has allowed me to get very very focused and a, a real tunnel vision in terms of my purpose, my passion, and my vision for why I'm on this earth outside of raising my child. Uh, and so I'm wondering what um, what do you hope for yourself? What what do you hope, what legacy do you hope to leave? Well, I hope uh, to leave a legacy of caring for all of our children and that we make a shift, uh, that my work helps shift that paradigm in how we value um, everybody's children and that we come to a place uh, through, through changes in policy and legislation that can often be complicated and arcane, but that, that there is a thread that goes through the work of making sure that children have what they deserve, just like you mm -hmm. said, have that, those moments of joy be able to be well cared for, have opportunities that they can have their dreams become reality. And we know that it is not a level playing field for our children. And I hope that when I look back on, on my work, we'll look back and see real places where we did level that playing field, where we did hold that door open for the next generation to walk through and to do better. And, mm. you know, it is work that is frustrating, as you said. It can be discouraging, but we're on the right track. And despite the politics of the moment, there are so many people out there who want this for themselves, for their own families, but also for their neighbors and their communities. And we can't forget that. We have to keep tapping that, that circle of moms, that circle of mothers, and coming back to that central caring for our children that is so part of who we are from the moment we find out we're expecting and from the moment we hold those new young lives. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna keep working to ensure that everybody's child is well cared for. Absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and to kind of wrap things up on a, a, a lighter note, a game that I used to play all the time when I was a teacher, <laughs> just like <laughs> our, our lunch, not a game with kids, but with the other, with the staff, we would sit around the, our, like our lunch break or whenever we had some downtime um, which in many ways the conversation was hopeful. And now that I, now that I'm about to say it out loud, sometimes a little sad, but <laughs> was what would you be doing if you weren't doing what you're doing now? Um, and I always found it really fascinating because I think it, you really get a peek inside, um, inside someone outside of the job description. So 
What would you be doing, Congresswoman Clark, if you were not a public servant and working in politics? Uh, Well, if I was not in politics, I would still be working in public service as an attorney. I loved loved being able to use um, the power of the courts and the law to, to fight for those who often don't have a voice in that process. So it could be in many different areas that I am interested in, but it would be centered around children and women and, and making sure we're, we're building a better future. Yes. Spoken like a true cancer. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Back to our thoughts. I told you I'm very true to form with the cancer. (laughs) I love that. If you would just uh, stick around for our next segment, which is Ask a Cool Mom. We have a member of our Cool Moms community write in on Instagram questions that are pressing for them. Great. This week we have Denise. She is 41 from Queens and a private chef. Cute. Uh, Denise writes, uh, virtual learning. I've recently overheard my daughter's teacher saying some questionable things in her virtual class. This isn't the first time either. She likes her school, but I'm torn about if I should address it or just remove her. Ooh, I'm sure this is an, uh, something that's coming up a lot. A lot more parents are privy to the the ins and outs of the classroom these days. Um, what, what would you say uh, to Denise, Congresswoman? Wow. Well, Denise, you sound like so many other moms, uh, you know, around the country who are struggling in being moms, teachers, uh, you know, Uh, principals and uh, doing their other jobs that they have to do. And these issues aren't easy, but I always think uh, one of of asking the question of not being afraid to challenge um, a school to do better uh, and and a particular person to do better instead of um, withdrawing and maybe not raising the issue. Uh, maybe that's where it will end up, but you know, let's let's hold that example up of not being afraid to to stand up and speak out, um, and trying to make change for for those kids in that classroom who may not have a mom who is as on it as you are and who has seen what you've seen. So I would go for the for for checking in and and trying to make the change in the school your child currently attends. Yes, I agree 100%. Um, We, you know, part of growth as humans is being held accountable and being able to take constructive feedback. So I do encourage you to speak up, speak up on behalf of yourself, your child, and, and just like Congresswoman Clark said, the other children in the classroom who may not have an advocate um, in their home. So yes, hopefully that helps Denise. And again, thank you so much, Congresswoman Clark, for your candor, for your time. I know that this is an incredibly busy time for pretty much everyone, but especially <laughs> a mother, especially a woman in politics. So um, I'm incredibly yeah. grateful. I don't know any mom who's just, you know, riding it easy right now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But uh, thank you so much. It was really great to be on with you and uh, really appreciate your work. Yes, such a pleasure. Until next time. 
like a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. <laughs>